hearing this, you're listening to the free version of Heavy Board. If you'd like to hear the full episode, become one of our subscribers at patreon.com slash heavyboard. For less than one cup of coffee per month, you will receive full access to uncensored episodes, jerk shop, special dispatches, bonus interviews, and more. Come join the conversation today at patreon.com slash heavyboard. It shows such a lack Heavy. of gratitude for life. Forward. I, I aspire to board them, I should say. Board. Heavy. I am heavy, heavy. Board. Uh, I kind of feel that same way, but I just, you know, the cliche is the easy one. Just keep that in mind. The cliche is easy to see. But then let's say, okay, so if I open up a book right now, let's say I open up uh, whatever, we're going to go to this, we talk about bad examples here in a second, but if you go to Poma Day, right? <laughs> let's say you go <laughs> to uh, to Poma Day uh, and you and you read the bullshit that they publish on that, on that website. Like, if every poem that I read that month is about the same fucking thing, usually some type of contemporary politics that's what a lot of it is so any type of contemporary politics well i'm bored by the time i get to the second third fourth poem even though they're all written by different people right because they're all saying the same fucking thing and i can read that if i scroll a social media timeline therefore it's not exactly cliche not yet at least will be soon trust me but like that is something so that i could criticize the content because like you always hear me ask this question is like, what is it saying? Like, what is the saying? Like, and, and it's always just, if you're saying the same thing that everybody else is saying, are you really doing anything original? I would say no, but I guess you could go to topics. Like if you go to big, broad topics that can very easily be abstracted. And that's what I mean is I'm not talking necessarily about things like death um, life or even in the Dickinson example, right? Truth. Those can be broad. They can be abstracted to meaninglessness. I'm talking about literally the same exact content. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. But yeah. So what makes a great poem? Structure, content, originality, start there. And then other than that, it's personal. And even within that framework, it can be personal in terms of preferences, things that you value more in poetry than others. So if you value what we would call structure and or received forms more than the average person, which is almost nobody in contemporary (laughs) poetry, uh, you're going to put more of an emphasis on something like that. And something like Hopkins would be more of what you would call a great one, right? If you want to put more emphasis on content, well, then you're not paying attention to any of the other two, right? Like when you go on Poma Day, guess what they're writing about? I guess, I bet you can't guess. I bet you can't guess mm-hmm. what they're writing about. Uh, usually it's just a summary from the New York Times, whatever it is. Like I, that, and that's really why it bothers me most about contemporary stuff right now, but sure. Yeah, there are a lot of things that bother me about it. What would you say makes a great one? Or change I mean, your... no, I think that's all adequate, right? I th- again, like, I think it's really hard to pin down. I think, you know, there's the famous Emily Dickinson quote, 
where she says something like, you know, the only way that she knows that she's read a poem is it feels like the top of her head has been taken off. All right. And I think that's getting a little like, you know, mystical about it, which we don't always love. But I think there's some truth to that, right? Like when you read it, like you, you shouldn't <laughs> be like um, impartial to it, you know? And sometimes you will be, right? Like sometimes we encounter great poems that it takes you several reads to really discover why it's great. Um, I think there's some truth to that. But ideally, you know, when you read a poem that's great, it's like, yes. Um, but that's not always true. Yeah. So that's what makes a great poem. And this is what Bloom says, too. We talked about this in the Bloom episode. He calls it a felt change. Felt Dickens, change. Dickinson yep. says, top of your head coming off. Mind blown, right? Mind blown emoji. Everybody can think of that. And that is an internal feeling, right? So that is something that has like been set off inside of you. That's the biggest measuring stick you can ever have in terms of determining what a great poem is or not. And that can happen. So like... We're going to read Bukowski eventually because Bukowski is one of my favorites. I would never say that Bukowski is a good structural poet. I would never say that because if you look at his stuff, the structure is non-existent. He clearly had no idea what poetry structure was. Like I said, you and then this is a good example of where you that stupid saying about writing or whatever, you have to learn the rules before you can break them. I think Bukowski proves that's not true at all. <laughs> he clearly didn't know any of the rules and he just fucked around and found out and a lot of it a lot of it's garbage the great ones are fucking great okay <laughs> like yeah. even though they fail the structural type of aspect and that's me personally doing that other people could argue with that so when you feel what makes a poem a great poem well if it gives you that kind of felt change the top of your head coming off mind blow whatever it is and not every great poem has to do that but usually the great ones hit somewhere inside of you that internal feeling that you feel and that can vary to degrees right that could be a little bit it can touch you a little bit it can touch you a lot so all of that matters in terms of how you say this poem is great or not right <clears throat> so when we read bloom you can go back and listen to that listeners if you're curious uh, he calls this that felt change, and I think it's a good way to describe it because he's basing a lot of his ideas, a lot of his opinions on these things. What is good, what is great, what is the best thing you've ever read? Well, that's all dependent on that internal feeling and the degree of which you feel it. And that's different for everybody. So that's what makes this a little bit complicated. So a little bit, you're just going to hear what makes a great poem to me and what makes a great poem to Sophie, right? Those are what you just heard us talk about. Not necessarily a great poem to you, although there is, and again, this is where it gets blurry, there is some objectivity involved in assessing something like that. Yeah, and I would say we end up liking a lot of the same poems and hating a lot of the same poems, regardless of the fact that we tend to be drawn to pretty different things most of the time. Yeah. Well, that's just cause we like click with all that stuff. We just have similar tastes. So we tend to overlap with our tastes, but you'll even hear us if you listen to our catalog. And if you're listening to this, you're a subscriber and probably have, there, there are points of difference. So there's difference in, in, in that as well, even though we overlap more than we differ, Sophie and I, in our taste or what we would call our own felt changes that allow us to call a poem great or not. But 
I think we hit that pretty good. I mean, that's like an hour on great. And I'll clean that up in editing, but it's like the next couple of questions, this one they're, they start to get into kind of the writing aspect. So that's more of a reading aspect. What Sophie and I just talked about in terms of how you use a certain criteria to assess a poem. And then, you know, what would you say makes a great poem type thing? What is that? Just pulled up poem a day. <laughs> so I copy and paste the author photo. Uh, Jacob Griffin Hall. Thank you, Jacob Griffin Hall, for contributing your author photo to our podcast. Oh, do you want to hit what? Uh... Whoa. This fucking chat. Yeah. Thought I'd just share the poem a day with you. We love poem a day. I don't. From poets.org. Yeah, no, we hate it. It's awful. Yeah, it's it's terrible. But thank you again, Jacob Griffin Hall. We appreciate you. This is the one they published today. Yeah, this is from today. Um, 29th of September, listeners. Did you want to talk about this one or did you want to hit the next questions? Uh, oh, let's just hit the next questions. All right, so the next ones, as I was switching off here, uh, those first two questions were kind of about how to assess the criteria and then how to call a poem great or how we would feel comfortable doing that as a reader. These next ones get into a little bit more writing, although I'm going to lead into that because we have one that's specifically about our own writing and there's one that uh, could be used for writing our own stuff and or assessing as a reader kind of what you like, what you don't like. So the they wrote in, how do you know when a line of poetry is working or not? What considerations are used? How do we answer that? Oh, God, so much. I mean, first, is it fucking boring? <laughs> like, that's like one of the first questions I feel like I ask myself when I like the first line of a poem, right? Oh, God, it's fucking boring. Does this suck? Um. So I think a lot about what a first line of a poem is going to be probably more than is like healthy. Um, so that's one of my first questions. Is it fucking boring? Could this be said in a more exciting way? Alternatively, is this too fucking convoluted? Um, is this overwrought? Is this trying too hard to like, are you writing? So much like a, a form can help you right? By painting you into a box, it can also sort of fuck you up, right? Like if you are writing a poem that doesn't need to be in a form and you are trying too hard to write to the, to the end rhyme, it, it might not be working. I don't do a lot of highly formal stuff, but I would say, you know, is the rhythm working? If I'm revising is it, the rhythm often is a, the way it sounds is often a big guide for me. I would say line to line. That's one of the biggest. Does it make sense when I walk away from this and come back to this, you know, 24 hours later, a week later, a month later, a year later, does it still make sense to me out loud? Um, as in, do I know what the fuck I was saying? Because if I don't know what I was saying, you know, a reader isn't going to either. Uh, those are the big questions for me. Is it... Um, it is my structure sort of repetitive? Do I want it to be? Um, 
do it does it need to be pared down right could this be more concise yeah before we get into the kind of composing your own work if i were to answer this from a reading perspective and i mean it overlaps right it does overlap so it's not like i just oh i only do this when i'm reading poetry not when i'm writing that's not true right it overlaps Questions that I would say would be useful to somebody who's asking me this to learn. How do you know when a line of poetry is working or not? What, what you know, considerations are used? What do I think about? First thing, what does it add? Yep. What does it add to the poem? Vonnegut has a great saying where it says, every sentence, every line, every fucking word in your work of fiction, this goes for poetry too. Well, in fiction, he was talking about fiction specifically, but every word, every line should do one of two things, right? Progress the plot or reveal character. That is a good rule of thumb for a lot of this. So do you have a little fancy superfluous sentence in there? Or does the writer, if you're reading something, just have a fancy little superfluous sentence that maybe sounds great but doesn't do any of those things? So reveal reveal plot or uh, reveal character. So... If and in poetry, it's a little bit different. So we'd say, what does it add, right? What, because it could add nothing. It could be a distraction. All of that. Next question yep. I would ask: Does it fit the larger piece? Does this line make sense within all the other lines? Whether it's a hundred lines, whether it's a thousand lines, whether it's five, fourteen, whatever. Does this one little line fit the larger piece, or does it take away? Does it confuse? All this kind of stuff. And then also, I would ask the final thing, is it saying anything, right? Because a lot of times you go in there and you'll see if it's a poorly edited poem or uh, I guess you could use this uh, as as synonyms, a contemporary poem. A lot of times it would be repetitive. Uh, the author usually didn't edit it enough because they didn't understand that that was repetitive or distracting or saying nothing at all. We did talked about this a lot when we did our Heather Crystal episode. Mm -hmm. episode 21 you can go check that out if you haven't already for like specifics a little bit more when we break down lines and specific poems but yeah i mean what do you think of those questions yeah i think those are the ones that like it's weird i don't think i've thought about what those questions actually are in a long time it's just like an autopilot thing yeah is this adding anything like that i think is the first and most important um, cause if it's not, you got to cut it. And there are lots of times when like, you know, that cut line can become its own fucking poem. Um, there will be whole sections of poems that are like that, that you have to just let go because they're trying too hard to do one thing that you've already accomplished or maybe are just not going to accomplish in this poem. Another thing I'll say, and this is if you're in a workshop or something, the one thing I use if I'm assessing somebody else's work, I ask myself this question often, and this goes beyond just like an individual line, but the poem overall, I ask if I didn't know this person. And, you know, usually when you're in a grads program or something, or me and Sophie, like, you know, we know a lot about each other. We know each other's likes, dislikes, relationships, all that that's going on, right? I ask myself, if I didn't know this person, like if I knew nothing about them, would this still make sense to me or am I projecting what I know about them as a friend into the work? And I think this is a big crucial step that a lot of people don't take, particularly in graduate level workshops where if you do the work to take that extra step after a few reads, 
you know, few reads going over structural stuff, you know, grammatical errors, whatever you see, word choices, all that kind of bullshit. But then to kind of go back and be like, does this make sense if I don't know who the fuck you are? I.e. somebody who would read this on the internet in Poma Day or something like that, right? A stranger that doesn't know anything about you, your life, your sexuality, anything like that, right? Would it, does it still work? And a lot of times, especially at the graduate level with this stuff, usually it doesn't, right? If, if you're curious, yeah, it, it usually does work if we don't know when we are not if we are not in this current moment in time. Um, this one happens quite a bit too, right? Uh, people think they're saying something big about some big thing that has occurred without ever referring to the event or to the time period that it's occurring in. And then you're like, oh yeah, if this thing hadn't been in the news yesterday, I would have no fucking idea what this poem was referring to. Or it would just be really vaguely about, you know, um, a kind of event, right? Uh, at which point it no longer really carries as much weight. But yeah, I, I agree. I think we fall prey to that a lot. I've definitely fallen prey to that. And this overlaps with the structure. This overlaps with structure, content, originality, all of that, right? So I wish we could say hard and fast rules, but we just can't do that with an art form like this. There are some structural rules you can refer to and be objective about, but it is very difficult to just kind of have that be the tell-all, end-all. This is the rule. You can't break the grammatical structure. Or you can't do something like that. But, you know, we all know that's not true. It overlaps. So that's how I would kind of know if a line is working or not. And this goes to the last question, right? And there's some overlap between the last question and this question. That's why I set them up this way. How do you assess your own work? So us personally, Sophia, our creative work. We've already touched yeah. on a little bit, but. Yeah, I already sort of talked about it for myself because I dove right into this question, I guess. Well, they overlap. That's why I said it. Was... an asshole. No, I mean. Same type of thing. So it's not like I would stop using those questions that I already said in terms of assessing something I was reading. What does it add? Does it fit the larger piece? Is it saying anything? I would use all those too, but like I would go a little bit further when I'm assessing my own. And I have two different methods for that. I have, I mean, it's the same method, but I have, I write poetry. I write fiction. I write both and nonfiction. I write all of them. So there's not that the method differs, but it is a little different when you're applying to longer form stuff, to a poet, poetry, all of that. Well, and it also like, okay, so how do you, well, let's start with you. How do you assess your own work with poems other than, you know, individual lines? Like, what does it add? Well, I have a process and this is why I saved this one for last because it gets into processes. And if the listeners want to know our processes, well, here it is. There are steps, right? I say editing process or editing steps. So biggest mistake I see. And a lot of times I see this in a lot of contemporary stuff, i.e. Poma day. Um, the easiest part is that moment of inspiration. The easiest part is that moment of initial creation, right? That's the part where you're just kind of making something up out of your head there it is, right? A lot of people stop after that because that takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of energy. So they'll be, oh, okay, that's, that's, I did this. I created it. Don't you think it's great? And that's when you feel at your best too, right? Like yeah. the, you're like, yeah, I did it. I made it. It's great. We all think we're hot shit. 
after we first like write a poem that we think is decent. Um, but yeah, that's just step one. And I have a rule. So my rule when I write poetry and or fiction, both, I write the first draft, first draft. I don't worry about errors, spelling, logic, nothing. It's written. Then I let it sit. I usually let it sit for a couple months. I won't go back to it for at least three months, depending on what it is, how it is, sometimes longer. Some fiction pieces, poetry pieces, I'll let sit for a year before I go back and do a second draft. So before I even get into, like, does this suck or not, I'll usually do about two, maybe three drafts before I start going, you know, does this actually fucking suck? What do you do, so? Yeah, so I would say my process is very different from yours. Um, I'd probably benefit from using some of your process, but I care a lot about all the things that you don't care about when you're doing a first draft. Um, I'm sort of, I get really hung up on grammar. I get really hung up on line breaks and like whether something makes sense. That is like, that's always been one of my big problems as a writer, making sure that I'm not so in my head, right. Uh, that I can make things make sense to somebody else. So that's like one of the first things that I'm always looking at. I'm really concerned with how a sentence sounds, with how a line sounds, um, So I get really hung up on these things in the first draft. And if I think it's worth a shit, I will come back to it. Um, Depending on, you know, what's going on in my world, I might come back to it as early as like that evening to give it another read. Um, If I wait until, you know, a a day later, sometimes I'll be like, no, this is garbage. And I'll want to walk away from it. Um, So I try to stay in that window where I'm still kind of feeling good about it and I'm still pushing for it to be better, um, to start revising. Yeah. And revision is the real work. Like revision is the real work of writing. They're rewriting. That's the hard work. So to create that distance, that's why I wait usually a few weeks, usually months, maybe a year. Um, I've known a lot of writers that do this stuff. Um, Space, distance, time allows you to be more objective with your own writing. The biggest problem is that you're too close to it, so you don't see the flaws or you don't see what is missing, what isn't working, what's corny, cliche, repeated, because you're so close to it, you're overlooking these things. Think about it this way. This is a cliche too, I know, right? Writers are, oh, put it, in a drawer. put it in a drawer for a few weeks, right? When you finish a draft, don't just send it out right away. And I mean even a polished draft, right? So if you're on draft four, five, six, seven, right, whatever it is you need to do to get that particular piece in shape, yeah, sit it down. Sit it down and take a couple weeks. I know Stephen King takes his rule six weeks when he finishes a novel draft. And then when he finishes a novel draft, he usually has done three drafts by that point. He says he puts it in a drawer and then waits six weeks before he pulls it out and reads it again. And what that does is essentially allows you to be more objective over what you wrote because you're not in that same headspace. You're not even the same fucking person you were when you wrote that shit, okay? Like three three months ago 
or two months ago or a year ago or even yesterday, right? You're not the same fucking person. That helps you see your work for what it is, right? What needs improvement, what doesn't, uh, what's missing. And these little things, rhyme scheme, word choice, all of that. Look at Robert Lowell, right? Robert Lowell did not write perfect complex rhyme schemes on the first, second, third, fourth draft, right? These were all done much later. He writes the poem, he knows what he wants to do with it, and then he spends months years probably on some of these longer ones yeah i mean look at putting, drafts of elizabeth bishop like, yeah putting bullshit. in a very complex rhyme scheme so that very complex rhyme scheme was not something that just poured out of his head one day when he was writing it it did come out of his head but it took months years of going back and looking over the rhyme scheme making it as perfect as can be type thing given how complex a lot of lull's early rhyme schemes are uh, Joan Didion, I know for a fact, she always said, right, she would do her writing in the morning, right? She'd have her afternoons, whatever. And then after dinner, she said she would have a drink or, you know, if she ate dinner, right? Didion famously had an eating disorder, right? <laughs> the, she would have a drink and then she would reread what she wrote that day. And she said the drink and taking that time were so important. Why were they important? Well, because her a few hours later, having a drink, she's not the same person she was when she wrote that a few hours earlier without, you know, alcohol in the system or whatever. Some people do that. I don't recommend using alcohol, although a lot of writers think they need to be alcoholics to be writers, but that's not true. Uh, but if it helps you to separate yourself from whatever amount of work you put in and feel really good about on the piece earlier that day then, yeah. you know, go ahead and do it. But, and these are all little personal things. Like you have to find what works best for you. My biggest thing, what I normally find, is most people don't want to do the work. Most people don't want to do the work it takes to write something to completion. They want to do the first part, the fun part, the creating it out of thin air. That's a lot of fun. It's a lot harder to edit it down, make it perfect, all that kind of stuff. What were you saying? Bishop's another one they use in writing classes to show editing yeah i mean you'll see like you know famously her it's a villanelle she has a famous villanelle called one art um you can just go look up the drafts of this poem right uh, it's been archived it's pretty wild too. yeah it's pretty wild like you can see like oh okay that's not like there's nothing sexy about her first draft like there really isn't uh, um, National Gallery in D.C., last time I was home and uh, I went to it with my wife, there was a great exhibit on handwriting called The Art of Handwriting at the time. And they were talking about The Art of Handwriting, but a lot of it was just famous writers, famous artists, their artists, like there was a couple letters from Jackson Pollock and stuff that like they had under, you know, under the museum glass you could go read and look at and shit like that. And they all say the same thing, no matter what art form you're doing. I mean, they talk about the same fucking things, like this kind of editing, reworking, redoing it. Like it's, you have to do your own thing, but there's no getting around that. Like you're not going to shit out a perfect first draft. Yeah. I rarely shit out a first poem. That's a whole poem. Yeah, I mean, like, I don't know if you shit gold, but like, maybe you do. It's probably not perfect yet. No, but uh, that's usually rare if it were to come out. 
all in one go. That would be pretty rare. Yeah. But not impossible if you're somebody that does it daily. That's that's the thing too. How do you assess your own work? Well, and then after you've done a few edits, you have to be ruthless, right? We love Berryman. You'll know it if you don't know it already. He has a great quote that says, one must be ruthless with one's own writing or someone else will be, right? (laughs) Someone will be fucking, and this actually is the benefit of workshops. So if you have somebody in your workshop that hates you, like just hates your guts, right? And I know you all have somebody in your workshop that has that, fits that criteria at least. I purposely would give it to somebody who hates me, who hates my work, hates my style. And I'd be like, well, what do they think? Because they're going to do everything they can to be ruthless with my work. Yeah, they're going to try to hate it even if right. it's good. Exactly. Heavy. Bored. Heavy. I am heavy, heavy, heavy. Bored. Sweats and the day sweats, pal. Pal, I do.